This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is Drew Dawkin, the Weekly Bull and Bear. Today is February 10th. We have a couple special guests with us. They were on with us a few months back. I'm delighted to have them back on. We're talking to Sajer Joshi and Sean Vanderwall, um, both at Drawing Capital. Drawing Capital is a technology-focused investment firm. Um, they are both managing partners at Drawing Capital. And I, I should mention that Drawing Capital also writes a free weekly newsletter, which can be found at drawingcapital.substack.com. Uh, that will be in the notes uh, once we release this podcast. I'd like to talk about a disclosure that all opinions expressed by Sean Vanderwall and Sajer Joshi in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are solely their own judgments. This podcast is not an offer nor recommendation to buy or sell securities of any investment fund, nor solicitation of offers to buy any such securities. An investment in any strategy, including strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk. Clients of drawing capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. With that, I'd like to kind of bring up our first talking point, which is that when we're looking at Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Now, they all rallied dramatically after March of last year. And um, on actually on September 2nd, they accounted for over $7.9 trillion in capitalization, roughly a quarter of the S&P 500. But we're having uh, vaccine rollouts, um, and we're actually doing, you know, relative to many other major countries, a pretty decent job, I think, on that front. So what effect are these rollouts of vaccines going to have on this big five, um, if any? Thank you for inviting Sean and I to the podcast, and I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for a great first question. First off, out of these five companies that you mentioned, and with the recent Amazon announcement, Facebook is the only remaining company out of this five group of companies that you mentioned with a founder CEO. To answer your question, I'll articulate a framework of experience management that may point us in the right direction. From an employee office experience and with the ongoing vaccine rollouts, it is likely to see one of four office formats. Format number one would be a return back to an in-person office experience. Format number two is a hybrid model in which employees are either in the office or in a shared co-working space for some days while working home from others um, or other days in the week. Format number three, Uh, would be a remote-only environment, and format number four would be a distributed hub model in which companies maintain several global offices where each office focuses on only a specific business unit or team. So that's from an employee office experience perspective. From a regulatory experience, it is entirely plausible to continue to see scrutiny and worldwide governmental initiatives regarding antitrust regulation taxation, data privacy, and Section 230. From an employee, rather from an employee, and then also really from an employment opportunity experience perspective, there are millions of people that generate their primary source of income from big tech companies, either via working at them or working for them, such as being an app developer, a podcaster, or a video content creator. From a shareholder experience perspective, in seeing dominant market share 
We anticipate market share dominance to continue for many of these big tech companies in core business segments. For example, AWS, Azure, and GCP are the top three cloud service providers. Amazon is a leader in e-commerce. Google and Facebook are leaders in earning online advertising revenue. And both Android and iOS are the two dominant operating systems on mobile phones. Uh, furthermore, I guess from a shareholder experience perspective regarding expansion in total addressable markets, we anticipate big tech to continue exploring both adjacent and expansionary market segments, such as healthcare and health tech via wearables, social commerce, climate technologies, venture capital investing, payment technologies, and fintech applications. From a competition perspective, uh, especially regarding to the big five, we anticipate heightened competition from smaller high growth tech companies and startups in America and competition from high growth Chinese technology companies. Several smaller tech companies that are in this hyper growth phase have actually increasingly unbundled many product offerings from big tech companies into individual companies that strive to provide customer experiences. So if I may, I'll, I'll kind of list a, a few examples as, uh, for example, Zoom versus Google Meet and Cisco WebEx, Superhuman over generic email clients, Slack versus Microsoft Teams, and Snowflake versus Amazon Redshift. So I guess in summary, a framework of experience management for employees, for employment opportunities, for shareholders, for regulatory, for competition, and other experiences will shape how big tech and other companies ex both expand and respond in a vaccine-enabled work environment. Well, if we think about another impact that the pandemic had, we really see McKinsey and company came out with how it has accelerated digitalization of customer interactions, as well as efficiencies within companies with, as you mentioned previously, working remotely, uh, increasing advanced technologies within operations, as well as online shopping using cloud solutions. Which elements of this utilization do you see to taper off once we make it back to some normalcy of, of the workforce uh, and which will continue to expand exponential growth? Great question. At a high level, anything that really increases happiness, increases productivity, and is cheaper, faster, and more convenient to a consumer will have a higher probability of adoption. While there is lots of discussion about companies and venture capitalists relocating their headquarters from San Francisco to other American metropolitan areas, a very real relocation is the fact that many companies have metaphorically relocated and uploaded their headquarters to the cloud. Cloud computing and digital transformation are two waves of innovation that started years ago and were accelerated in adoption due to the coronavirus crisis. And I guess beyond the obvious uh, that we all know of remote work reducing time-consuming work uh, commutes every day, video conferencing has unlocked new methods of communication, efficiency, and interaction. Companies such as Zoom, Twilio, Fastly, Datadog, DocuSign, ServiceNow, and so many more have helped power this work-from-home movement for businesses. At Drawing Capital, we believe that the cloud is incredibly underinvested and is experiencing a hyper-growth phase. Viewing the data uh, from ETFs, uh, for example, the Dow Jones ETF uh, under ticker symbol DIA manages about 18 times the amount of assets compared to a cloud computing ETF under ticker WCLD, 
Yet the Bessemer NASDAQ Cloud Index has cumulatively outperformed the Dow Jones by about 1,000% since August 2013. So clearly there is a humongous delta between cloud computing and the growth of that specific industry compared to a broad market index such as the Dow Jones. So I guess in summary, cloud computing and many other areas are experiencing increased utilization with this wave of digital transformation. Another thing that seems to really made a lot of headway is there's a lot of intersection. We're talking about biotech, healthcare, you know, geometrics, uh, which is sometimes referred to, you know, in its totality as precision public health or PPH. Uh, this is heavily relying on big tech and big science. What are some of the trends in this field and what's worth mentioning from the perspective of tech investing? Excellent question. I'm so glad that you asked this. I believe that we are approaching a transformative era in the biotech community. Specifically, there's lots of optimism in CAR-T, CRISPR, oncology research, and so much more. From a financial markets perspective, we can see this rising biotech optimism via significant M&A deals, rising assets under management for biotech-focused public and venture capital funds, and 2020 performance returns. So just as a quick example, I remember reading on Morningstar a couple of weeks ago that the XBI biotech ETF returned about 48% in 2020, and the ARKG ETF ARKG, uh, by ARK Invest returned about 180% in 2020. So clearly ex exceptional returns and possibly more to come here um, in the ecosystem within the biotech community. Drawing comparisons between tech and biotech, like you mentioned in your question, there are two key distinctions among many that are in this space. Two of them that I'd like to mention are ranked best choice preference and a high degree of regulation. So for example, companies willingly use the fifth best cloud vendor and individuals willingly buy from the 15th best t-shirt maker. But how many people are willing to use the 15th best drug in the market for a specific condition? The answer, I would guess, is probably very, very few, right? Intuitively, that, that makes sense. Also, between the HIPAA data privacy laws, FDA approval process, and additional regulations, the biotech industry, as well as the broader healthcare sector, is a highly regulated field. Of course, patient safety and regulation are important, and there needs to be an efficient method of bringing safe and effective drugs to market to help patients. And I guess finally, and hopefully this uh, helps answer your, your overarching question, which is finally, all importantly, why now for biotech? And clearly the coronavirus crisis has placed equality health as top of mind um, in, in many people's minds. The combination of the coronavirus crisis, advances in computational biology, recent developments in DeepMind's AlphaFold, rising demand for precision medicine and personalized care, proactive prevention mechanisms, and the declining cost of DNA sequencing all have sparked a significant interest from researchers, scientists, patients, and investors. Previous drug development cycles could take hundreds of millions or even billions in capital in a decade in time. A top priority is that patients are wanting better health outcomes. Second, a lot of these fields, they require talent, right, in order for development. And lots of quality talent has been flowing into the biotech community. Flow of talent into a specific industry can be a leading indicator of future progress, along with the fact that there are partnerships between academia, foundations, hospitals, individual biotech community, uh, communities and companies 
as well as the National Institute of Health or NIH. Third, there is growing importance of reducing failure in clinical trials and R&D processes, which leads to more discoveries and enhanced potential for sustainable progress. And I guess as, as a final point I'd like to make is that there are rising data science applications in the development of sensors, healthcare wearable devices, and smartwatches to create real-time live health dashboards, thereby using technology to improve healthcare outcomes. This is something that is literally here today that was not here, let's say even 10 or even 20 years ago. So hence the question, or hopefully provides some guidance onto the why now for biotech. So overall, it remains important for biotech companies to focus on science-driven innovation, experimentation with creativity, and a core mission. The intersection of personalized medicine, data science, and modern technology presents a super compelling opportunity set. Yeah, everyone these days are wearing their Apple watches. And I think when you're in Montana and it's negative degrees, it's, it's yelling at you to get your steps in. Um, so I think the access to that is, is definitely something to, to monitor moving forward. But to change gears, we now have a new president in the United States, President Joe Biden. And the pandemic has certainly exposed systematic divide in the country based on uh, when it really relates to rural broadband. In your opinion, what do you think would be helpful public policy framework to help bridge this divide? Uh, first off, returning America back to 2019 won't be enough, especially when tens of millions of Americans were already dissatisfied in 2019. One alarming economic statistic that I recently read from the Federal Reserve was that the fact that from December 2000 to December 2020, there was no net job creation in America for people aged 16 through 59. Think about that, age 16 through 59, no net job creation between December 2000 to December 2020. It is clear that America needs to move forward, evolve and become a better version of itself. And hopefully this new administration will be helpful in both building back America and advancing America forward. From a policy perspective, I'm an advocate for focusing on advancing society by trying to solve America's hardest problems, such as the coronavirus crisis, healthcare, modern infrastructure, climate technology, education, internet and digital connectivity, economic empowerment, diversity and equality, housing affordability, and so much more. Clearly the list goes on and on. And importantly, each of these categories are literally multi-trillion dollar opportunities for improvement. So I guess my guidance um, to, to anyone, government, company, nonprofit, et cetera, including myself, uh, would be simply please pick one or more and start innovating. Innovation leads to growth in knowledge, economic advancement, and improvement in America's standing in the world, which builds back the economy, creates more jobs, solves more societal problems, and creates a brighter and more unified future for America. Key effort, reference and key emphasis there for unity in the future of America. In summary, a government public policy framework that reinforces innovation, creates distributed enhancement in the standard of living and promotes the betterment of America is beneficial. One issue that was certainly prevalent in the last administration and doesn't appear to go anywhere is net neutrality. That was a particular contentious issue in the last administration. Um, recently, we saw Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, uh, who was during the Trump administration, he defended the administration's stance on the repeal. Can the current administration roll this back with an executive order? And what is the likelihood they would they would even try? 
And I think this one's for uh, for you, Sean. So just to briefly touch on net neutrality in general, this basically took effect under the Obama administration in 2015 uh, and was repealed, like you said, during the Trump administration in 2018. They were brought into place initially to stop internet service providers from charging more for high quality content and bottlenecking traffic to certain websites. But basically the argument against net neutrality supported by Ajit Pai uh, is that it stifles innovation and hampers the providers. Whereas on the flip side, the argument for net neutrality is that there's otherwise nothing to stop the same internet service providers from offering greater bandwidth to websites who can afford more of it. And I think with censorship, being a major concern now, it's going to prove to be an important issue. But I don't believe it's quite as simple as passing an executive order. The FCC is its own regulatory body, which would need to reinstate net neutrality rules. Currently, there's a divided FCC with two Democrats, two Republicans. Jessica Rosenworcel is the current uh, acting FCC chairwoman. Uh, Biden would need to pick uh, a third Democratic commissioner which may well be the permanent chair and with a democratic majority in the Senate, I think it's pretty likely that net neutrality is reinstated uh, by way of this new permanent uh, democratic chair. Uh, Ms. Rosenworcel is uh, also a proponent of closing this digital divide. I wanted to just note something from Pew Research has basically been tracking this since 2000 as well, that currently in the United States, 90% of adults have internet access as of 2019. Uh, of adults making $75,000 or more per year, 98% have internet access, and even for the lowest core ho- cohort of annual income, which is defined as less than $30,000 a year, 82% of those people have internet access. So we're not at the quite at the end goal yet, but I think making progress and these figures were, you know, about 10% less 10-ish years ago. So the momentum's in the right direction without any sort of additional government intervention. Uh, And I think where there's big opportunity to make money and disrupt current incumbents, there's improvement, even though it's not always immediate. Just to give a a quick example here, uh, two richest people in the world we know today, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, basically launching their own programs through Elon Musk, Starlink owned by SpaceX and and Project Hyper for for Bezos are are coming, coming forward with as quickly as they possibly can to provide internet access via satellite to remote and rural areas. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys saw that Musk just started uh, accepting pre-orders for Starlink. Uh, I I think they have, don't quote me on this, but somewhere around 11,000 satellites up there now. So that that is the next order of things as far as the space mission goes and providing internet access to people. Again, uh, like Sagar said, in, in support of innovation, driving the change here. Elon Musk seems to be at the forefront of a of a lot of things. Uh, one thing we did see Elon Musk and a couple other folks uh, is the crackdown on social media. So social media has increasingly been cracking down on perceived misinformation. We saw uh, the sell off of Twitter, especially after banning President Donald Trump from its platform. Uh, we do see uh, there's constant conversation about Section 230. Do you see large bases of users leaving social media platforms in this hyper-partisan environment? And if so, what does that mean for Twitter and Facebook and, and other uh, social media platforms moving forward? Yeah, great question. So I don't think you actually see users migrating from social media in general. We've just built 
our lives now, the way we do business, the way we connect with people and share things is all via these social media platforms, you know, obviously now owned by primarily by these big tech giants. But you could, however, see platform changes from places like Twitter and Facebook. We've already seen this start to happen with WhatsApp to Telegram and Signal. Key drivers here being censorship and privacy. Uh, and this will ultimately be dictated by the market based on whatever those needs are. You could still see M&A activity and new platforms get rolled into these larger companies, again, that are flush with cash. But in the previous 12 months from, from January of this year, there were about 490 million new social media users, which represents a 13% year-over-year growth. So I, you know, it, I don't think it's going away from social media, but I think the underlying mechanism and, and some of the terms behind which they operate may change. And I'm sure with the, the, the change in administration, there's going to be plenty more in the news about misinformation, censorship, privacy, and the role of social media intervention. All of these decisions by major players could either lead to them retaining their user base and, and growing it further, or they could experience an uptick and churn as users look for solutions that better address those censorship, privacy, or other concerns. And if we look at a repeal of Section 230, um, which may cause platforms to be more restrictive and more have more censorship, how big of an impact would that have on Twitter and Facebook? Yeah, huge. So just to take a quick step back uh, for those that aren't as familiar with Section 230, it was basically created in 1996 as a part of the Communications Decency Act which enable the user-generated content. And arguably, the internet is where it is today, largely because of Section 230 and its ability to drive more people online. And for time's sake, I'm diluting Section 230 a bit, but in essence, it outlines the rules for members and organizations of the online community being treated as platforms versus publishers. And this is a super important concept, but uh, the reason this has come up recently as such a heated issue is due to the, the rights of free speech being potentially infringed upon and ultimately the unilateral power that these tech giants like Facebook and Twitter have. Uh, the reason that nothing has been really done about it so far is that these organi organizations have said that they would remain neutral speech platforms. However, that's now being called into question with a number of members being deplatformed against their wishes, notably a situation which I'm sure we're all very familiar with by now was, was the GameStop debacle. One of the main online tools used by retail traders to communicate, an app called Discord, was suspended in, in the absolute height of Melvin Capital and other funds losing billions of dollars, where essentially screenshots were taken in the app that displayed vulgar language. And then they turned around to cite that as hate speech as a means to shut down all communication between those members. You also have instances uh, of apps like Parler being completely removed from Google's search results and Apple's App Store, Hunter Biden laptop story being stripped from Facebook and Twitter. So uh, I think the main issue here and the reason Section 230 should be amended, not necessarily appealed, in, uh, appealed uh, entirely, is because right now we're in this gray area. These companies are acting as publishers arguably a small handful of individuals, honestly, behind closed doors, but hiding behind this veil of being a neutral speech platform, you know, having their cake and eating it too, essentially. But specifically, 
what we're talking about here relates to Section 230C2, which states that, quote, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. The problem here today, and unfortunately, just like you said, the hyper-partisan environment where anything even remotely offensive to a small group of people is now up for debate in the section of 230C2. Ultimately, I think what, what really should happen, again, is not repealing 230 entirely, but just amending it to be a more clear definition of what it means to be a true publisher or a platform in a world now driven by algorithms. Obviously, that wasn't an issue in 1996, and the status of these applications, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, needs to be clearly identified to users and the public. It, it's basically this ill-defined situation leading to companies in some situations redacting people's communication, their right, basically just of, of their own subjective views. And I, I think honestly that the organizations need to be held accountable, management needs to be held, held accountable for to, similar to the requirement of CEOs and CFOs having to personally sign off on financial statements. You know, people need to be held liable for, for violating the rights of users as well, but we do need to start by, by properly defining that in a modern context. Kind of going around the realm of censorship, we, we've definitely seen a lot of movement in China. Uh, they've recently cracked down on its largest internet companies. Uh, they created a last-minute suspension of the Ant Group company stock offering. Um, antitrust policies are attempting to rein in Tencent Holdings, uh, which is, you know, the operator of WeChat, uh, not to mention, you know, there was that strange period of time where Jack Ma went completely radio silent. I, I think a lot of this follows, you know, on the heels of what we saw in Hong Kong last year functionally. But why the sudden crackdowns in Chinese tech? And what's the significance? Yeah, I, I'm not even sure it's entirely a sudden crackdown. I, I think it's something now very publicized and notable especially like, you know, going back to social media and just those videos surfacing. But Ant Group was going to be a record-setting IPO bigger than Saudi Aramco. I think we actually talked about this briefly last time we were on the pod, but uh, anticipation around that, uh, of course, was a, a huge interest. Then Jack Ma all of a sudden was deemed to have been critical against China's financial regulators. Specifically, the comments in question were in regards to the financial system where Ma said that they stifle innovation and that financial services should be more available to small firms, individuals, and that the current system is too outdated and risk averse. He referred to it as an old men's club that operates with a strong pawn shop mentality. And what's not necessarily a new thing is that as a Chinese company, as has been the case for a long time, they're beholden to a certain set of rights and responsibilities for, for growing that company in China. Adherence to the government is a part of those responsibilities, and the CCP is obviously very strongly opposed to any critical language against it or other regulatory constituents. Again, you know, just benefit of being an American citizen is we have freedom of speech. Literally, the very First Amendment, if something isn't functioning as it should, it's okay to be openly critical of that system. Bringing issues to light is how we address and correct them. The primary difference between our system and China's system is that the winners 
in the marketplace here are largely dictated by the users who basically upvote and support companies with their hard-earned dollars. Uh, in countries like China, the government you know, comes first and they have a large degree of influence over the success of companies that are domiciled there, even those as big as Ant Group. And while there's not a huge amount of transparency here now, and I doubt Jack Ma is in a strong position to shed much additional light, I think if anything, it's just a good reminder that you know, too much power with any one group or organization is not a good thing, you know, including U.S. tech companies as well. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It was great follow up. I mean, obviously, the world's changed quite a bit since November, and I'm sure it will in a few more months. But, you know, everybody, all our listeners and subscribers, be on the lookout for this. Uh, I will put the link in as well for drawingcapital.substack.com in the show notes. Thanks again, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.